Everyone, welcome to the Perseverance Podcast. My name is John. I am with my great friend, Ange Mason, again. Welcome back. Thank you so much, John. Good to be here. Great. This is episode eight, and this is like part two to a conversation we started in the last episode talking about uh, perseverance, preaching, our bias on preaching, and how this all sort of fits together in uh, one little package. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk to you about this, John, because this is something that you have obviously thought about and done for a long time. You have been speaking to one congregation for over 25 years. Yes. I have only uh, been attending and been a part of this working with you for around 18 only. Only 18 Mm -hmm. years. (laughs) We are are both the incarnation of perseverance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. At least in one context. Yeah, yeah. It's a long time in ministry. It is. Uh, But John, I'm really thankful because I have actually... Uh, seen and watched you learn and refine. Mm. And um, I have learned quite a bit about preaching from you. Mm. And so one of the things I remember you talking about um, last podcast, you ended here and you talked about this specifically with a group of uh, staff as you were coaching us as to think about preaching was to direct your conversation to multiple audiences in the room. Right. And so initially, I remember when you said that, I thought, okay, yeah, non-Christian, Christian. And and yet you go into defining um, the groups more than that. Right. Um, can you just help for the audience listening here today hear what your categories are? Yeah. So we we ended this in episode seven, mm-hmm. and we'll do a little recap now uh, by saying this. So Angie and I help lead a church on the east side of Toronto. Uh, Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. It is the most multicultural city on earth. 300 heart languages spoken. It is the literal incarnation of pluralism, multiculturalism, uh, post-Christianity, repaganization, modernism, and postmodernism, all in one crazy place. And so I hate the word pivot. I used to u- use it before COVID. <laughs> now all of us can't even get it out of our mouth without sort of vomiting a little. Like, But the, the necessity in an environment like this, or any environment, no matter where you're listening in the world, to pivot to multiple audiences while you're preaching out of God's word is incredibly important. And so this came to me, this is where this started for me. I didn't share this in the last episode. Uh, I remember um, uh, one of my favorite teachers in high school died and he mm. was Roman Catholic in background. And so we all went to uh, the funeral mass and I remember he was a beloved high school teacher. Mm. And so this was a large Catholic church. I think it would sit like maybe 1,500, 2,000 people in pews. So it's really, really big mm-hmm. uh, in a little city called Pickering or not so little anymore, just uh, mm-hmm. west of here. And it was packed. It was, mm-hmm. it was packed. And I remember the priest getting up and doing the liturgy. And I think there was like me and like seven others that tried singing the hymns. So they were Catholic hymns because, you know, there was like one person from a Pentecostal church, an Alliance person. There was a few Roman Catholics and then me. And we all sang and the rest of, you know, and as I listened to the liturgy, which much of it was so biblical and beautiful and right, mm-hmm. it struck me how it presumed everyone in the room understood and everyone in the room was a Christian. Mm. And then, of course, he called for communion. And I'm like, don't go up. And all my friends were going up. I'm like, you don't even believe this is sin. And I, I as a Protestant, of course, didn't take it because I'm not allowed to uh, in their system. Anyway, all that to say, I was so disturbed when I walked out of mm. that moment because I was like, that priest missed a massive opportunity to almost 2,000 people who do not know the gospel to actually to share something, but he presumed the room. So that got me thinking years later. So in, in in our context, what we do here all the time 
usually at the beginning of a sermon, not every week, but regularly, mm-hmm. uh, one of our core values is we acknowledge there's two audiences. Mm-hmm. It's, it's right in our core values. We want to be able to speak to those who are, have crossed the line of faith, who are followers of Jesus, and those who are not. So that's like a core value, and we have to always evaluate in our ministries, in some way, how are we doing that thing? More than that, in our preaching, uh, regularly I'll use um, these categories, and I shared them last time, where I'll say, listen, uh, some of you are seekers. And I think I shared in the last podcast, uh, seeker became the code word for non-Christian in middle-class churches in the 90s and early 2000s. The problem with that is most of the non-Christians I know are not even seeking. Mm -hmm. They are not seekers. (laughs) So some people are seeking, and it's legit. Uh, But what I'll say is, hey, you know, good morning, glad you're here. You know, whether there's an illustration, we're going to talk about illustrations today and whether useful or not. But uh, I'll say some of you are seeking, seeking, you're genuinely trying to understand if the Christian faith is true. Then I'll say some of you are skeptics here today. Like you don't believe a word that's coming out of my mouth. You, your hands are crossed. You're not even sure why you're here. Uh, and then I'll say some of you are secular. And actually, I think I forgot to say this in the last mm-hmm. podcast. I'll say some of you are ag- agnostics and atheists, and you're not sure scientifically and faith-wise. And then mm-hmm. I'll say some of you are from other faiths, and you're maybe Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist. Some of you are spiritual. You're not religious at all. You know, it's like hot yoga and, you know, right, being mindful. Mm-hmm. I said some of you are brand-new Christians. Like you've just become a Christian last week or month or last year, and some of you have been Christians for decades. I won't say that for like 20 minutes. I'll literally sort of rattle that off in like 35 seconds. Just like you just did. Just like I did. And -hmm. and I'll just say, no matter who you are, we want you to be welcome. We want to acknowledge you're here. And God is going to speak to all of you, whether you want him to or not. Mm. And so that sets the environment for someone to go, oh, I think I fall my I think I fall here, not there. Now some people may be like, don't don't identify me, don't put me in a court. Fine. Whatever. You can't deal with everyone. But the point is, you're we're not seeker sensitive in the historic sense, but we are and using seeker in a different way. We are fundamentally seeker aware. And like what we were saying in the last episode, what has shocked us is all of those people are in our seats and online every week. And they come up and tell us. I people, I mean, it's happened. Uh, someone came up and said, you know, this in the last little while, I've been listening to your sermons. I'm a Muslim. I've been listening every week. You acknowledge me all the time. Yep. Other people, are, I've heard story after story. I was an atheist sitting in the back row and my girlfriend dragged me here and I hated you, hated everything. But you kept saying atheists were welcome here. So I stayed. So there's that at the beginning. And then at the end, no matter where the illustrations, and then, of course, the the uh, applications go. I'll just say a lot of times, hey, listen, if you have not crossed the line of faith yet and you're spe- spiritual or secular or whatever, just so you know, God's saying this to you today. If you're a brand-new Christian, I want you to think about this. If you're a long-term Christian, I think maybe we need to think about this. And by doing that, people find themselves uh, not just in the story, they find themselves in in the whole thing, which I think is just so honoring. Now, some people you're listening and you're like, oh my goodness, John, I don't live in Toronto. I don't live in a post-Christian environment. You do more than you think, just as a side note. I want to say that out loud, my American friends, especially in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you really thought about it, there's probably more diversity in your audience than you think. Yeah. You can be a church of 80 and think you know everyone and you still don't. Yeah. So your emphasis is really just don't presume who's sitting in don't front presume. of you. Um, and make sure that your language helps people feel that they can see themselves. Right. And because we live in a digital world and almost every church on earth now puts their sermons online, mm-hmm. you have no clue who's listening. 
Good point. So, yeah. you know, yeah. like uh, never presume that who's in front of you is the real audience. It's just part of the audience. Well, that's that's an interesting element to add to that. Yes, but I, yep. I think um, what I appreciate so much is that you have become very aware, very intentional of the language that you use. Yep. Um, and so by addressing these audiences, people can feel a sense of belonging. They feel welcomed. They find themselves throughout your sermon as you're talking, realizing that you are addressing them. We're going to talk a little bit more about how you do that in the application part. But before yeah. we get there, I think it's important to talk about language um, because you have um, decided that there's certain things that you just will not say because you know that it will actually exclude people. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, and let's just be careful here because we're living in a moment where so many people are afraid to say anything. Mm-hmm. Because you know there's cancel culture, and I know that's a use a overused term, but it's real, mm-hmm. and that everything's online, and there are lots of trolls out there, and people just want to destroy people. That's not my motivation. Uh, the question I ask when I'm writing a sermon is: Is there anything that's in here that actually, just language wise, not content wise? Because, like we said in the last podcast, uh, we never say this is a safe place to find God, mm-hmm. because God is good but not safe. So this is not about uh, watering down the gospel. This is not about uh, changing scripture to suit, suit some cultural moment. None of that. The question is, is there anything in my language that could go, oh man, that just would, that, that wouldn't be helpful. So on a regular basis, uh, we were talking before about this. Uh, I, will, I will always try never to say the word guys. Mm-hmm. Just as an example. Now, some of you are like, oh, here we go. And, you know, you must, th-. no, no, just, just hear this for a second. It doesn't matter if you're complementarian, egalitarian, where you fall theologically. Just, this is something I'm aware. Of. So uh, we just did, um, as a staff, we did this thing called the five voices from John Maxwell organization. It takes uh, the most famous personality profile, uh, uh, Myers-Briggs, and mm-hmm. then teaches you how you influence people and what it feels like when you influence out of that place. Mm-hmm. So we had a great time. It was a good thing. Our good friend, Chris Fasche, used to be one of our executive pastors here, came and did it. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, uh, the senior leadership team uh, actually watched some videos after that moment that was talking about how how to uh, do well with co- uh, conflict and difficult conversations mm-hmm. uh, between people out of these five voices. Really helpful stuff. But what I was struck by, I mean, this is John Maxwell. These guys are like at Coke, supposedly, and Google, and right, is the presenter said, guys, I think I counted 21 times. Wow. And I was like, how did no one catch this? Yeah. Now, my wife probably doesn't care. Hmm. Like, who cares? But I just thought that's a small example of... Um, is there a word that you could find a better word just so there isn't a landmine? Mm-hmm. It's like the, the Christian word Gentile. Mm. Um, I, I really get disturbed when people use that word because mm. the average person who doesn't know the Bible has no clue what that means. Mm-hmm. So when I preach through a text where it says Jew and Gentile, I'll say Jew and non-Jew. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not changing it. It's not. So I'm just trying to, not obsessively, willing to make mistakes. You know, sometimes I've said mankind instead of humanity, mm-hmm. and no one loses their mind. But it's just like I'm, I'm trying to be aware without being weird and without being leftist or rightist. Am I just being wise? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the guys thing for you, interestingly— uh, oh, that's a huge landmine for me. I, I really, <laughs> maybe it's my age or I, I don't know. Just, um, I think 
professionally, I don't think it comes across well. Um, yeah. So I I never use the word guys when I'm addressing an audience. Right. Um, but I it really bothers me when others do. So yeah, it's a great example. I know one time I came off stage and someone had said to me, um, the word apostle confused them. Like they just didn't understand. And uh, so I just, uh, disciple afterwards and it, and it helped, um, although there's slight difference. But Yeah, I was going to say, like our job is not to change the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Our job, we can say disciple if it's there. If it's apostle, we can explain it. So let me give you a great example of where you can't play the game. Okay. And it's in, in, interesting. I uh, This week, so we're recording this right mm-hmm. now. Uh, and when we're recording this, even though you can't see it around us at all, it's, it's Advent world right mm-hmm. now where we are. And so I'm preaching uh, through a series on Mary right now. Yes. And um, there's this incredible verse in Galatians 4.4 where it puts Mary and Jesus at the center of holy history. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read it. Uh, but when uh, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, there's Mary, uh, under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, I just want to make this clear for all of us who work hard to be exegetically, hermeneutically correct and be th- have theological integrity. Uh, I would never change that to sonship and daughtership because mm-hmm. sonship in that case is a very specific thing that came from Roman law that was connected to adoption law that implied something very specific. So a lot of people who almost go overboard with this, they'll go, see, we're all sons and daughters of God, daughtership, sonship. That's true but don't use it there. So that's where I'm saying, I'm just asking in the everyday language that you use, have you just sort of considered uh, if anything would be a land buying by mistake? And you don't have to be perfect. And if your congregation wants you to be perfect, then <laughs> you're going to lose. We only work for the perfect guy. But an attempt at awareness without freaking out, I think is, is helpful these days. Yeah. If possible. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that's really helpful. And sometimes it's not just a matter of one word you may say. It's actually maybe full statements that you could yep. make um, that would be like a broad sweeping statement that actually causes a greater barrier well, than just one word. I'm really glad you bring that up, Ange, because we're going to talk about illustrations in a minute. Uh, and we're going to talk about application. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I yeah, I shared this to another community and I, I really, I'm really glad you brought this up. Broad sweeping statements uh, show that you have not done your work. Okay. Um, and so uh, I, you know, it's funny that the senior pastor I took over from um, here all those years ago, Dave Collins and I were are were so different. I will never forget the advice he gave me. He said, "John, uh, you're about to take over a church just under a thousand people in the suburbs. Everyone's got a university degree." Don't you ever talk down to these people. Wise. Yeah. And he was saying it because I was brash and I was young and I was intense and I was smart. Mm-hmm. And what he taught me at that moment, and other pastors later, you know, affirmed that wisdom in me, mm-hmm. <laughs> is um, one of the ways that we talk down to people is when we make statements or talk over people is when we make statements that are so broad that they're just not true or they're partially true. So I'm really careful all the time, as much as I can, to say things like this. So instead of the whole Western church is in trouble, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember years ago when we were going through a really tough time here and a whole group left and started a church 10 minutes down the road. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
one of their now current elders and still a friend of mine said, you know, John, like every church in Canada is just like falling apart. We need to be faith. I said, whoa. I said, do you know every single church in Canada? I don't. And I know a lot more than you do. So my encouragement to anyone listening is when you're writing at your sermon, look for any time where you say all those people, all those things, that group. And, and instead of, there might be a lot of truth in it, but just say much of the time, a large amount, uh, certain groups. When you qualify that, people who are watching go, oh, Ange or John or whoever's speaking didn't just broad, broad sweep everything because that's a landmine that isolates people. And I would say a lot of uh, passionate preachers, I'm pretty passionate, but a lot of passionate preachers who don't work hard on scripting or don't work hard on how they do notes well, end up making broad statements in the passionate moment that actually hurt them in the end. Mm -hmm. So my encouragement is, hey, uh, look for language that would isolate someone, but do not change the scriptures. Like if the scriptures say something sinful, call it sinful. Doesn't You don't change it. If the scriptures say something specific and actually you can't change the gender or something because that's then don't change it. But an awareness that there are, that we're already preaching God's truth, which is already being resisted by the demonic. Our human hearts don't want to hear it. Every world system's against it. So there's a lot of resistance in the room, and we who are delivering it are screwed up ourselves and are trying to be faithful in the best of days and talk to our families. We're not faithful all the time at all. So let's not set up any more landmines in the room. There's enough already there. Yeah, I mean, your intention and why you're even suggesting that people be aware of this is so that we're honoring the people that are sitting in front of us and so that we're also humbling ourselves. And that's why uh, we don't come across saying you need to change, but rather we need to change. We are learning this together. together. And the biggest thing is I would never want someone to trip over a thing that doesn't need to be tripped over hmm. and then miss what's actually being given. If they're going to trip over Jesus, trip all away. If they're going to get upset because Jesus says sexual things are right or wrong, trip all, no problem. If they're going to get angry because God's specific on gender, I've got no problem with that tripping. I don't, though, need to trip someone up because I have not done thoughtful work trying to be careful with my words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, I think that's just something we've worked hard on here and we try to do on the best of days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you and I both, as we prepare sermons, rule, write out our entire script, uh, read it through, practice it, and and then go and preach it that way. There's others on our staff who yep. um, will write it out and then prefer to preach from an outline. But you have recommended scripting because then we're conscious and aware of our language. Yeah. And there's, there's uh, moments uh, where what I'll do is I won't script certain parts of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, certain parts I will script, certain parts I will not script that are more storytelling, mm -hmm. uh, and it comes more to life in a different way. Uh, and I, again, please hear this no matter where you're listening to, whether you've been preaching for 30 years or you're just starting, none of this is legalistic. We're not saying it shall, shall be so, but I think we are just saying it's worth the time. It's worth the time to think about. Well, when I, uh, one of my main roles previous to the job that I have, the position that I have yes, now, yes. Uh, included preparing resources for our connect groups. Right. And I used to read through your sermons. I would notice uh, you wouldn't write out your illustrations, your right. stories. We're going to talk more about how you chose, where those went, and which ones you chose. Um, but one of the things that I did notice was that <laughs> you had multiple points, because I think uh, when... 
I was trying to figure out what's the one main theme, what's the one thing that the connect groups ought to discuss. It was hard to find the one point or even when we grew up, I mean, we both grew up in churches where we would regularly hear a three-point sermon. Yep. Um, And you don't tend to have one point, John. You tend to have multiple. Right. Why do you intentionally do that? Yeah. So um, again, if you've taken preaching classes, some people have that are listening. A lot of people say, you know, everyone should know the one thing we're all getting out of a sermon. And I'm just like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Other people are like, you should have three points. I'm like, absolutely not. And people are like, what? I'm like, look. Um, <laughs> a few things. Number one, three-point sermons are great. Sure. One-point sermons are awesome. Uh, that's great. Uh, my, my view is this. I'm speaking to a congregation that has multiple people in it in multiple places. So I think a shotgun mentality is way better than a laser. I do the laser work in the text. So we walk through the text together. And if you hear my style of preaching, and uh, Angie, you know this well, um, you're going to learn a lot about history and what the words mean. And so we're walking through, what does this mean? So um, a few weeks ago, we did this famous Acts 10, Peter, you know, with with Cornelius the centurion. And, you know, that idea where Peter walks into his house and I stopped the, and I said, stop. I said, everyone just stop. I said, you don't understand how serious this is. And I talked about how, you know, Jews associated purity and religion and access to God and holiness to hospitality. And he was breaking all these rules. So the laser work, in my opinion, like the, is during, I understand this text. I understand this text. I get it. You get it. We get it. We sort of, you know, if we can keep up, we, we get it. And then at the end I go, okay, now we're on a hundred different places so I'm going to give seven points or three points or one point or nine points. And I'll just say, for some of you, you need to hear this today out of the text. For others of you, you need to hear this. Sometimes I'll do it. The applications won't be assigned to a group. They'll just be here six or seven. Other times it will be actually to the groups we talked about, seeker, skeptic, brand new Christian, long-term Christian, other faith, um, right? Uh, sometimes I'll actually, because of the prompting conversation we had, there will be only one point where I'll literally get up and say, there's so much out of this text we could say. But actually, I really think the Holy Spirit wants to say this to Sanctus today. Um, that's not saying, by the way, for you who preach a lot and you're, I can hear your questions in your head, you're going, you don't like literally say every application of the text. No, of course not. There's, a, there's like, on a, out of any text, there's probably 10, 15 things you could say in multiple directions. I'm asking the question, what, what, what do I think the church needs to hear? Uh, what has the Spirit said uh, said to our church already? Is there something he revealed during it? And what about these different groups? And so I have never been bound to one or three. Sometimes it's one, one sometimes it's three. And it, I know you used to get so frustrated in our early days because you were like, John, what's the main point? I said, I will not give you one. And you're like, but I need one. I'm like, no, you don't. Your group needs nine. She's like, what are you doing? And But I think what's so interesting is when you build a culture of teaching and preaching that addresses multiple people in different places all at once after you've journeyed through the text, uh, many more people hear. 
many poor people here. Yeah, and I think that what I have learned as well is that when a group comes to that moment of discussion, they, they've done the exegetical part, they've looked, they studied, but then when they look at the applications, there may be one that they end up spending more time talking about yeah. than others. But if we give them the depth of what that passage has actually uh, spoken about, um, because the passage itself will have application points oh, in it. natural. So you clarify what those are, uh, but because the Spirit's been leading you, depending actually on which site even that you're preaching at, Correct. Uh, you may go in a different... A different direction. Direction. Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the other things that we do here too that I don't see demonstrated in most other places is at the end of the sermon, at least when I'm preaching, I'll end up actually in the moment praying through the points. So I'll stop and say, so we're going to pray through what we've just, not just heard, but what we've actually, uh, not what we've just learned, but what we've heard. Mm -hmm. And so I I will usually almost 90% of the time pray over. So for the seekers and skeptics in the room that I just spoke to about this, Lord, open their eyes. To the brand new Christian, we just heard this, Lord, would you help them that this week? If we're dealing with an issue like, for example, um, uh, I think it was a week or two ago with a Cornelius passage where Peter has this shocking revelation he's supposed to go. I, I distinctly remember writing that sermon and the Holy Spirit going, John, I'm going to do that across all five sites. So you need to stop at the end of your sermon. And when you pray, you need to at, you need to stop and you need to ask the Holy Spirit, my spirit, to actually put people's faces in people's minds. So I did that. And I said, Holy Spirit, I don't know what you're about to do, but across all of our sites, um, just like you did with Peter, you shocked him and showed up and said, go to this place, do this now. And that's as much intellectual application as it is what the Lord wants to do in the moment. And I think having that understanding, it's not just about now, the danger with those who preach is if they think they've won the day because they've taught it well, they lose. Just because you've taught something well does not mean the application is there yet or the Spirit of God has been invited yet. You have to do all three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that when you speak about inviting the Spirit by prayer at the end, that's what then prompts people to linger yes. and and take time to respond uh, immediately to what they've just heard. Yeah, or at least begin the wrestle. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that may be a big process big for them Big process, up depending on what it is. It. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, okay, thank you for that. Um, I, I think... You have um, talked a little bit about um, illustration already. We've we've mentioned that we we have families. Uh, you and I both love to tell stories. Yes, we do. And uh, I mean, I have four kids. You have three. I actually live with my in laws. I assume <laughs> God just did that in my life so that I have lots of content to gather stories <laughs> from. Um, but I do regularly write. This is something you've. Uh, given me instruction on and and said to others as well, take notes about what's happening in your life so that you have stories. I think I have a, a stockpile of stories yeah. that I can share in sermons. Um, wh- what's your opinion on when to include a story or an illustration? Yeah, so number one, yes, we both have families, but we just to clarify, we're very cautious what we say. <laughs> And yeah. very cautious. I always uh, have to run it by, my kids are older than yeah, your, well, well, some are some, older, yeah, younger. Mixed, yeah. um, but I have to run it by them yep. first before I... Of course, because uh, they are not there at our leisure, 100%. Uh, no, wh- what I always encourage people to do, number one, is always be writing down what happens in the boring. Because mm-hmm. everyone can relate to a boring. 
everyone has to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Everyone has to go grocery shopping. Everyone has had a sick child or friend. Everyone's had to cram for an exam. Everyone's had to walk a dog or a cat or like, you know, some people walk a cat. Yes, people do that. No, like, so I'm always looking for that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'll say about illustrations. Um, And again, this is, uh, I think, just helpful wisdom we've heard here. Um, Never let an illustration hijack the text. Just don't do it. And I know some of you have preached for so long, you know this, but it's temptation. When something epic or amazing happens, you want to use it immediately, resist that. You have to wait until the text allows that illustration to help because the the authority of God's word is what we want to give. The, The worldview of scripture is what we want to give. The authority cannot be in your personality and the authority cannot be in the amazing story that you tell. If people walk away and the story has more power than scripture, you've lost. Mm. And so lots and lots of times um, I will have a really great illustration and I'll just wait and wait and wait till it's right. Sometimes I was asked this when I was doing this actually with uh, another group of young and older preachers mixed together. I, I just say sometimes I don't have an illustration. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what do you do? I said, I preach the text. Mm-hmm. Um, here, here's the thing. We live in a moment, and um, uh, we're in our 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've lived through a very – our generation has lived through a very interesting transitional moment because um, we remember pre-internet, post-internet, pre-iPhone, Android. I'm sorry if you have an Android. We forgive you. <laughs> Post – you know, all, all of this. Here's what I'll say. The competition now is epicness or nothingness. So like everything that our kids see is epic. So um, like epic, it's amazing and- And if it's not, they just scroll on because they'll find it. It's boring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like everything that used to be so awesome to use the original meaning is now just normal. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, uh, especially you who are listening who might be younger pastors or those thinking about preaching or those who are older or trying to be relevant- uh, and you feel the pressure. Um, you can't be epic every Sunday, right? You 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 can't be. You you can't have a world life changing, funny, brilliant, insightful illustration every week. You can't. So I would encourage you not to feel the pressure to be epic, just to be faithful. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard at your craft. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be working. Hard, but this pressure to compete against everything. Uh, um, another way to put it like this is uh, so many people read their Bibles like a Marvel movie <laughs> mm. where it's just like, and this happens and then Thor shows up and then Thanos is here and but, 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 but it's like 24 seven years, like adrenaline, adrenaline, awesome, awesome, awesome. And, and lots of people read the Bible like that epic story to epic story, but they miss the verses that say there was a hundred years, mm. 20 years, you know, 60 years. <laughs> so if we demonstrate even uh, epicness and boredomness in our preaching, we're actually being faithful to the text because that's actually what life is really like. It's like marriage. You and I are both married. Uh, and if if uh, if the expectation was that marriage is epic every moment, we'd both be divorced by this point because it's not. Much of marriage is boring. Much of marriage is sad. Much of marriage is awesome. And those three things sometimes happen in one day. So the same in sermons where if you're preaching, especially long-term in an environment like I've had the privilege of doing here, you can't keep using the same sermon because everyone will remember. Like you can't, don't, your people are not dumb. (laughs) 
you know, and I always have a rule too that if I've used something and it's been like, you know, last year, I'll say, oh, I used this illustration last year. I brought this up last year. Or I said this six or seven years ago. So that one person who goes, didn't you say this before? Like, yep. But, you know, brand new crowd here. <laughs> so I think that's really important. If you have an amazing illustration that helps the text, use it. If you don't, don't panic. Preach God's word. Even if it feels a little dry and boring, give God's people what they need. And always try to include the everyday. A great great example. You were here. Um, uh, I just was talking about my cat, right? And, and <laughs> the story about... Um, so I was given um, a cat for Father's Day, and uh, Ange knows this. I had not. I had actually specifically said to my family, <laughs> "I do not want any more animals. I have three children and two dogs. I do not have the emotional capacity to take care of anyone else. I'm done." And my wife, who strategically gives me gifts all the time for herself or our children to me, which, by the way, happens all the time, <laughs> she brought home. Not one. How many? Two cats on Father's Day for my Father's Day gift. Hmm. So I, I was very angry. There was sin in the house. My <laughs> wife said to me, she she said in 23 years of marriage, she's like, I suddenly realized I'd crossed a line that I'd never crossed before. Uh, one of the cats went back. One of them stayed. And of course, uh, of course, who loves the cat the most now? Of course, mm-hmm. it's me. Mm-hmm. His name is Moses. My kids named him Moses. I love him a lot. But uh, you know, Ange, because we've worked together for so long, I am a Christmas tree fanatic. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in many houses I've had six or seven, they're all decorated differently. I'm one of those obsessive people about Christmas trees. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want a cat for one reason, because cats destroy Christmas trees. They are the, they are the organic enemy. They are the original enemy of the Christmas tree. Uh, Moses and I have had many conversations and I have a squirt gun to keep him away. So, (laughs) but let me just, let me just say this. The funny illustration was when we plugged in our, one of our trees the other day, when we were setting up, uh, some of the lights didn't come on mm-hmm. and we couldn't get them working. And then I left and I was driving home and then I saw through the window, I was in a different street, that most of the lights were back on. I was like, oh, my wife fixed it. And then my wife said, oh, I didn't fix it. The cat went in the tree, chewed the wires and the lights came on. And I laughed and I said, this is perfect. And I used that illustration to talk about how sometimes salvation comes from an unexpected place mm-hmm. and used that for Cornelius and mm-hmm. Peter. Mm-hmm. So it's looking for those moments. The other thing I'll say too, when you're talking about il- using illustrations well, is always try to get your ang- your audience angry about things that don't matter. So divide your audience over stupid things that everyone can laugh at. So you've seen me do this many times. If I say pineapple, pineapple pizza, what happens to our audience? Mm-hmm. People lose their minds. Uh, another one is, do you think, I'll ask you, Andrew, right now, do you think that you should, uh, when you're in bed, should your feet be cocooned underneath or should your feet be free? Definitely cocooned. See, see did you see it? Yeah. Definitely cocooned. Like, when you can find illustrations that divide an audience in a very, very fun way, mm-hmm. And get people thinking about how they react to something like that, and it still isn't divisive like we see in social media. It's a profound way to bring life and unity in a disunifying moment. It also actually helps your audience get to know you as an individual because they know you like pineapple on your pizza. <laughs> I, I I do. I don't. I'm not obsessed by it, but I love it. <laughs> What's well, a funny thing too is like there's the joke around here about candy corn. Yeah, can't yeah, like stand it. yeah, and I and Everyone I don't mind. Gives it to you. Yeah, people. Well, what I said one year was I really like candy corn. That's all I said, and now it's like in our church I get like bags of I've candy corn. I've walked by your desk and seen bags left, and on I'm my- not asking for it. <laughs> I, I said I like it. I'm not obsessed by it. Yeah. I should just ask for something else. 
Might as well. I really, really like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, I think that this is really helpful advice. You've given just permission, freedom for people to think, oh, I don't have to have an illustration. Right. I don't have to be epic. I ought to be intentional and make sure that it actually is relevant to the passage that I'm doing. Yes. Um, so these are all really helpful thoughts uh, around uh, using stories and, and when to use them. Um, Actually, did you speak much about like when to use it in the sermon? Yeah. So no, I didn't. And okay. thanks for asking. It depends. Yeah. A lot of times uh, I will find an illustration might bring a, a passage or a verse to life in the middle. Right. So a lot of times like you must start with one at the beginning. I'm like, no, sometimes mm-hmm. you don't. So um, in the series we're going through right now while we're recording this about Mary, you know, my first introduction to the Mary sermon is going to be talking about um, actually how the audience has maybe related to Mary in the past. It's not even an illustration. I've, I, I say this coming Sunday, um, stuff like uh, some of you who might be secular or come from another faith might know Mary existed but might not know much about her. Others of you might grow up Roman Catholic and Orthodox, and actually for you, Mary was at the epicenter of your Christian walk and used to pray and used do the rosary, and now you're an evangelical Protestant church, you miss her. Others of you are like, oh my gosh, I want nothing to do with her. She got in the way of Jesus. Others of you only heard she was Jesus's mom. Others of you, and that's just, that's not an illustration. It's just helping the audience go, where am I with Mary? Oh, I'm there. And so that's not an illustration. That's a finding place, but I'll use an illustration probably later within the message. Other times, another sermon I'm writing, because again, right now, I just finished one today and I was doing research on, are there any Christmas carols that are written during horrific moments of sadness? Mm-hmm. And um, there's that famous one that, um, oh, I'm going to forget it now because <laughs> I'm recording while I'm doing the bells of Christmas day. I, I'm not mm-hmm. saying it right. Um, but the what I discovered was why he wrote what he wrote. I heard the bells on Christmas Day yes. and it, and how his wife actually almost burned to death and he went into depression. His son ran away during the Civil War and got more almost mortally wounded and his son is recovering and he, now he's a widow and has five other kids and his country's at war. And then he wrote, you know, this amazing Christmas hymn and I, I'm using that at the beginning to actually talk about how sometimes caroling or worship is a way we resist darkness, just like Mary did with the Magnificent. I'll use that up front. So that's a that's different ways to approach it. So sometimes at the beginning, sometimes in the middle, even sometimes at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so so sometimes use them, sometimes don't. Yeah. Uh, when you're reading a specific text, how do you know whether or not you need an illustration? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, lots of you who preach, you've got a gut reaction. You know your audience. Here, here's what I will say. Uh, just by experience, I find that when you're preaching through narrative parts of scripture, uh, you need them less sure. because the narrative part of scripture reads like an illustration. Mm-hmm. There's so much. And and one thing I'll do, for example, when I'm preaching through like a narrative part, like the murder of Stephen, I remember saying to our congregation, I want you to imagine the moment with me. I wonder if Stephen felt like this. And I'll actually write out almost like a movie script of him getting murdered. And and that's a way to to illustrate the thing. The, the, the way I used to do it as a storyteller is I used to say it in first person without qualifying it. Then people got upset. They're like, well, that's not in the scriptures. And I was like, no, I'm just trying to tell them, like, well, you're coming too close. So now I'll say, um, I wonder if Stephen felt this, and then I'll say it, but it still brings the passage to life. 
sometimes you actually do use the language. I guarantee this. And so I think mm-hmm. that's partly just your your personality. Uh, you're an intense yeah. uh, individual. Um, and, uh, and so what have you learned when you think about what your gift mix is, your personality, your style, when it comes to preaching? Yeah. So I would say a few things. Um, I mean, we're always growing and always learning and always getting feedback. Uh, but the, the um, I'll use the guaranteed thing, for example. I now will use that if it's true. Mm-hmm. If it actually is guaranteed, I'll say it with authority. One of the mistakes I made, not connected to preaching, but also in vision casting, is when I was younger, I said everything with the same tonality and in the same um, with the same emphasis. Mm. Uh, I used to say it like it was rock, not not like wet cement. And we talked about this with uh, the difference between mission and vision and cultural vision. So I've learned that I'm always an intense individual. That's never going away. But there's different tonalities you can use to determine what's authoritatively stated. Because not everything is authoritative and not everything is intense. And that's, by the way, you that, that's why, by the way, if you're in a church that you have more than one teacher or preacher, it's good. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the... Um, uh, in our context, I remember uh, uh, quite a critical person of uh, of me and who used to attend here, uh, who still respected me as a preacher, but not much else. Used to say, you know, my preaching is like hot express, uh, hot intense espresso. Uh, it's hot. It's just it's gonna burn your mouth. It's gonna hit the back of your throat, and you're gonna <gasps> a little. Or, or other people have called me like a fire a fire hose preacher. Right? There's just whoa. Um, and I think that people need a break from you. Mm. So that's why other voices and other people are great and they're different than you. And that doesn't take away from you at all. So I would say I, I use emphatic language if it's emphatically true. I don't use emphatic language anymore if it's not. Um, I also have realized, Ange, how much fear was related to my preaching and mm. – um, and, you know, we talked about actually some of that during the two episodes on revival. What I have now found is that I'm always a quick preacher. I'm a quick talker. Mm. I'm a quick processor, but I'm a lot slower than I used to be. People are like, really? Andrew's like, yes. <laughs> uh, but a lot of that was based on adrenaline. Yeah. And so I've now realized that uh, when I walk into the pulpit, I'm actually slower now uh, because I'm not adrenaline charged because I'm not afraid anymore of the audience or trying to win something. Mm. Uh, that's been a huge change uh, for me, I would say. Uh, like I talked to in the revival uh, renewal things too, I um, I now use sermons to shield sheep and not wound people. Uh, that doesn't mean I will not, uh, I will not wound myself for the people if the scriptures go there, but I don't hijack the text to get my agenda across. And I didn't do that all the time. That was not like every week. I was some weird like Machiavellian Sith Lord using my sermons to destroy people. But it, but there was a lot of fear and pain and anger and sadness in me for a long time as a leader. And uh, um, now a lot of that's gone. I don't feel the pressure to either... Some people listening, you, you feel the pressure of uh, performance or you feel the pressure of like trying to compete with the famous person down the road or online or you're bringing your own stuff to the table, when more and more that gets worked out, you will speak uh, slower and you'll speak with pure motives. Mm-hmm. I think that's been a huge, uh, a huge thing uh, I've learned. And I just think also 
I'm just okay if I make some mistakes. Mm-hmm. And any preacher who's preached for a long time listening, you're like, yeah, of course. But yeah, uh, um, if you're always appearing perfect, you're not real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. I think that part of that is just allowing the spirit to lead you. Mm-hmm. And to, I mean, you and I are different personalities, um, and so I may come across somewhat more nurturing in my approach or delivery. Yeah, of course. Um, however, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, I think that 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 doesn't. I, I guess what I'm trying to think about is just the. I, I want to be myself, um, and I want to be true to who God made me to be. Yeah, and I think that that's what you're trying to do as well. A hundred percent. Yeah, we've got to. We've, <laughs> we've got to be uh, good with who we are and we can't mold ourselves into something that we're not. It's just, it's never, it's never going to, we're never going to win. Mm-hmm. We're never going to win. So we got to, that's part of maturing and growing and preaching for sure. Uh, but I, I would say um, connected to perseverance, uh, this idea of getting this sorted out in your soul changes the nature of why you preach and how you preach. It also allows you to preach long-term because you don't feel the pressure to be epic all the time. And if, like we were talking before, if you always have to have an epic illustration, your sermon always has to, you will not persevere. You, you'll be destroyed in an environment. Or you'll leave every two years, <laughs> and you'll leave every two years because you just want to recycle what you've got and never do new work. Yeah, and we're, our role is to push people towards Jesus, away from ourselves. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think, again, uh, the heart of so much of this is going to be working so, so hard to make sure that people remember <laughs> uh, the text more than they actually remember us or the illustrations we even gave, mm-hmm. uh, which is hard, but it's it's okay. Okay. I think that we should just hone back in on one thing. I mean, you mentioned intensity, but I heard you speak about the difference between intensity and anger. Yeah. And I think it'd be really helpful for people to hear that description. Yeah. So huh, um, it's interesting. It, it's first of all, it's hard being an intense personality in this cultural moment mm-hmm. uh, because um, uh, there's so much conversation about um, uh, intensity and anger mm-hmm. that if you appear angry, then people presume you're angry. And and uh, and so I'm a pretty intense person now. On one on one, you know, actually, I'm pretty. I'm a pretty kind guy overall, usually. Absolutely, I will vouch for that. Yes, um, though I've obviously made many mistakes, but. Here, here's what I'll say. I think a lot of especially younger preachers, uh, and I'll – sorry about the gender statement, especially guys, sometimes equate anger with spirituality, and it's a fatal error. Um, I will always be an intense personality, always, till I die. Uh, but intensity is not anger. And so you can be passionate about something – and engaging about something and thoughtful and want to take a thousand hills. But you you need to be very aware when that crosses over into anger. Mm. And I just see a lot of preachers rally around the angriest voice. And um, it's funny, you know, you can grow a church uh, in revolt and you can grow a church out of anger. Mm-hmm. We saw that during the pandemic. Yeah, You know, a lot of churches grew because they stuck it to the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, now their 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 struggle is they've got all these people who don't agree with each other uh, in one church and the pandemic's over. Now what do you do, right? I, I just, I think, that's not a political statement. I'm just saying that you can grow a church like that. And and uh, I just 
a lot of people confronted me about this. It's something I've always struggled with. People have, you know, been kind about it with me most of the time, not always. But I think now, 48, preaching all these years, I just know that if I'm ever angry uh, about something, then I need to, before I step out to preach, ask the Holy Spirit to deal with that. Now, people will sometimes think I'm angry and I'm not, and I can't, you know, the problem with being a public persona, let alone a preacher, is, you know, everyone views you through their own lens of stuff. And if they have a traumatic experience, they can't divorce you from that. And there's a whole, that's a whole other podcast of leading in traumatic moments and we'll never win. You just never can win. But here, here's what I will, will say. What I will say is you can be bold, you can be intense, but you don't have to be angry. Mm-hmm. And I would just say to a lot of you who are younger preachers, ask Ask people that you trust and ask Jesus by his spirit if you're intense or you're angry. Because uh, here's what I know. Uh, I heard that we win by love. Now, biblical love is not weak. <laughs> First Corinthians 13 love is, is bold. But it's not angry. And we need uh, faithful voices. We need unashamed uh, gospel preaching voices. We need to defend the scriptures. We need to, when something's a primary issue, we die on the hill. Mm-hmm. We die over the virgin birth. We die on the physical resurrection of Jesus. We have to be honest about our secondary views. Mm-hmm. Women in ministry, and you and I have had this conversation in your own journey so many times. Yes. Uh, and we disagree with people down the street on this. Yes. And it is a, it's a huge issue and it affects us. Mm-hmm. It affects you. Mm-hmm. affects how you do church. But we don't lose unity over that. There are tertiary issues. Um, we have to be honest about all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in all of those things, when we're defending the absolute thing that makes truth truth, or the things that were on judgment day, someone's going to be wrong, or in the things that are cultural decisions, mm-hmm. uh, if we're marked by anger, we lose. I, I, I've wondered recently more and more um, – I, um, I'm starting to write my fourth book um, on how to witness well in a repaganizing moment. And one of the questions I'm struggling with right now is I wonder if uh, the way we lose is more important than the way we win. And so I think there's something in that related to preaching. I think people want clarity and we need to be clear. I think people want boldness. We need to be bold. I think people want us, uh, want us to be winsome and caring. I think we should be winsome and caring. But uh, we don't need another angry voice. We need a strong voice, a truthful voice, but not an angry voice. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for that reflection. I think that that's something that Paul wrote about in Philippians 1, actually, where he talked about, you know, less of me, more of him. Right. Um, And uh, And we grow in it. It's not zap and it's done. And so I have lots of charity because there's a lot of people who prayed for me for a long time to grow into, you know, who I am. And there's a lot of you praying I grow into something else next, <laughs> like we like we would all say. Anyway, I, I think those are some really good reflections. We hope that this has been helpful to you, mm-hmm. you who have been preaching for a very long time, you who are considering preaching, you who are just starting out, that some of these reflections would help you preach well, teach well, but also build perseverance. So uh, your starting point, your middle point, your end point 
can be reached because you're not working out of a place of fear or wrong expectations, but you're also not setting up landmines you don't need to step on. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, we want to say thanks for joining us at the Perseverance Podcast. We'd love you to like this, link this somewhere in your world, send this to other people, and we're going to come back and have a whole different series of conversations next on the Perseverance Podcast. Thanks, Ange. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.